Welcome to this week's Leader's Guide for the Spring Quarter of Life Groups. This resource is provided to help you prepare and effectively lead your group. For your convenience, you can also download a written version of the guide under Life Group Leader Tools at gatewaycrc.org forward slash lifegroups. Remember to tune in each week and to look out for the weekly edition of Life Group Leaders Weekly. Let's join Adam Van Dopp now as he introduces this week's material. Well, hey there, Life Group Leaders. Welcome to our Week 8 Leader's Guide. I hope and pray that you are all doing well this week and that you've been able to enjoy some of the nicer weather that we've been having. It's been certainly nice to see some sun, wear some sunglasses, and to enjoy a little bit more warmth out there uh, this week. And I hope that you've all been able to experience a little bit of that yourselves. Well, here's just a few announcements before we jump into our material. Uh, This week is the week that we will be distributing the feedback forms. And uh, like last semester, we're going to be doing this primarily in a digital way so you will not be getting actual paper copies to fill out but uh, a link to fill out an online form so we can hear back from uh, you and your members about how your semester has gone and we look forward to seeing that data come together so that we can learn and grow this ministry of life groups into the the fourth semester coming up in uh, the fall then also I encourage you to keep on doing your attendance even if you have not met if you had to cancel off your group for whatever reason please just cancel off those events still uh, that helps us track our ministry better and also uh, this week we are not providing any kind of training document but one thing I wanted to, to encourage you all to do prior to your group's meeting is to spend some time reading Romans 8 and 9 uh, those are two stunning chapters that Paul writes to help us understand how we fit ourselves into God's plan of salvation as this week's topic on Sunday morning has us looking at the doctrine of election from Deuteronomy 7 and it's a heavy heavy topic but it's super super neat the way uh, we can interact with it through these two chapters in the book of Romans Uh, and this is where there's uh, incredible verses where Paul writes if God is for us who can be against us or another one where he writes nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God Uh, He writes in 9 verse 5, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And I'd love to unpack that more, but we'll see that for another time. And then also he writes, it depends not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that's just an incredible verse for us to have a discussion around uh, election and what it means for us in uh, the 21st century. So let's jump into the the study guide for the remainder of our time together that we get here, where we start off with the two discussion questions for getting to know each other. And yes, we're on week eight and these discussions are still really neat to have because they get everybody talking and gets everybody on an equal playing field, which is a fantastic spot for your life groups to start on. So number one, spring is in the air. What are you most excited for in this next season to come? And so again, use this question to get your group talking and get yourself settled into your Zoom or um, Teams meeting as it's a very low risk and gets full engagement from all the people. Go around your room specifically inviting your group members to respond as uh, you need to. And then the second question has us asking, we've been facing this pandemic now for over a year. What is one thing that you have learned about yourself in this past year? So self-reflection is always a good thing. And uh, if we're not looking back upon our lives of what we've learned and how we've grown, we're not looking into the future with a, a little more clarity. So use this question as a way to reflect upon the past year that you have had as a group and as individuals, as we've been forced to alter and adapt our patterns, which we've, we've never had to do so on such a scale before. And so as we've navigated these challenges, uh, we most certainly have learned something a little more about ourselves. So ask this question of your group and allow the individuals to share what they have discovered. 
But one thing that I encourage you to do is to be gracious for their responses. Be, say thank you, Susie, for sharing that with us. That's incredible. And then move on to invite the next person to share. Then open up into your quick review section where we ask, looking back at your notes from this week's teaching, was there anything that particularly caught your attention, challenged, or confused you? Uh, again, this is a question that we have asked each week, and it's just a, a, a great way for us to reflect upon uh, the message that we heard this past Sunday. And then Pastor Justin offers this question. Of the five is and isn'ts about your adoption that Pastor Justin talked about, which one stood out to you the most and why? And it's funny, with these kinds of questions that we've been asking about our, the messages, is uh, we've been asking about which one stands out the most, or which one is going to be the most difficult. And surely some uh, people in, in your conversation there are going to be like, well, all of them, or, uh, well, none of them. But just still encourage your members to pick, pick the one and, and give reasoning why the one most stands out, or give the reasoning why uh, nothing stands out. It's just, again, it's just a fuel for conversation. We can break the rules as you're having your conversation, of course. Which leads us into the God story, looking at the triad of questions. Read Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to 11, and ask the same questions that we've been asking about these passages all along. Uh, What does this passage say about the character of God? What does this passage say about fallen humanity? And where does this passage specifically expose my own sin and unbelief? And entertain a conversation in those ways. Which leads us into the digging deeper section of our material. Again, I want to remind you, as we do all the time, is that it's never the goal to answer all three of these questions and their subpoint questions and even the taken home question, but work with the questions and follow the lead of your group as you go through them and uh, know, know the capacity as well. Be aware of what your timing is, is allowing you to do. But here's uh, question number one. Read Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 through 7. There is nothing that the Israelites or us have done in order to receive God's love and his care. Yet he still loved and cared for the Israelites despite their sin. And the same is true for us. How does that affect you? Well, if there's one thing that the doctrine of election teaches us is this firm truth, that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more, and also there's nothing that we can do to make God love us less. Where Paul writes in Romans 8, uh, a fairly well-known passage that emphasizes this point, that there is nothing in all of creation that will put the Lord's love, that will pull the Lord's love away from us. Paul earlier writes in a few chapters earlier, Romans 5, uh, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so picture this with me. While Jesus was on the cross, he was fully aware of the sins that we have committed, the the sins that we are committing, and the ones that we will yet commit. And yet, he is there on the cross with full knowledge of all these things, still taking on all of the sins that we did, everything that we had done, and he's still dying for our cause. Which is is stunning to me, really, as I think about it in that way. And how does that affect you? Well, it's got to affect us to the core of who we are, really. But as I was reflecting upon this earlier this week, I remember the song, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Uh, Some of the verses go, When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. Wherever realm of nature mine, my gift was still far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. How does this knowledge affect us? Well, any gift that we could give back to the Lord is going to be far too small to uh, merit anything, really. But our souls... in in their fullest form is our gift back to the Lord. Our desire and our hearts to be bent towards his is the the truest gift that we can give. 
and if uh, knowledge of his love for us and what he's done for us doesn't get us into those spaces, uh, then we're, we're missing something along the way. So love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. So I encourage you in this discussion to lead your group to a place of praise and of gratitude that this is the love that we all have the opportunity to experience and to live into. So I want you to have a bit of a follow-up conversation too to this point. So read Matthew 3 verse 16 through 17 and John 1 verses 9 through 12 and ask yourselves, what does this mean now for you to be called a child of God? And so Matthew presents to us an amazing visual of Jesus' baptism where the heavens opened up and we hear God's booming voice saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And as Matthew records this gospel narrative, he shows us that Jesus has done nothing up until this point in his earthly ministry other than being baptized. And God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I am happy with this man. Then we read in the book of John, as he records this really short nativity account, that because of Jesus' coming, that all who believe in him, that he gave the right to become children of God. And so we can make the connection between these two verses that God looks quite favorably upon his children, who have done nothing for him and his kingdom as of yet. And he looks on upon us, and he is pleased with us. And this is a staggering point. What happens is that when he sees us, he's not seen Adam, he's not seen Trevor, he's not seen Justin, he's not seen Sally, he's not seen Sam. He's seen his son, Jesus Christ, sorry, he's seen his son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross, taking the punishment for our sins. And yes, of course, he sees us as well, but he sees us in our perfected bodies because of the work that his son has done. And he sees us and he's happy with us and he's pleased with us and he's delighted in us. But what all this means is that you and I, we don't get to sit on our hands. And we don't just get to let nature take its course because God didn't just start this world and said, go. He says, go, I am with you. I love you. I am yours and I am here going ahead of you. And so our response to this gift is love and our obedience to his commands and is our desire and uh, to honor and to glorify him. And so here's an additional question and, and I'll explain it in a second. Does God have any grandkids? And this is such, such a, a super neat thing to think about. But I want you to take a moment now, if you choose to go this direction, to realize that nowhere in the Bible does it talk about God's grandchildren. As God has no grandkids, we are all his children, our grandparents, our parents, us, and our children, and our children's children, and all future generations to come, we are literally all on the same generational line within our faith. You see, God has no grandkids, and I think that's just so neat that me and my daughter Tiana and Taryn and Eden, we are all children of God, and we are direct descendants of His. And He looks upon us and with love and with grace and with mercy, and He says, I love you for just who you are. And I think that's just so neat. Which takes us to the second question. Read Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, and Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 where it says, out of all the peoples on the earth at that time, God chose the Israelites. And God told Abraham that they were being chosen so that all families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, why do you think this redemptive plan started with just one nation? And so in Genesis, we see uh, God speaking to Abraham, telling him that he will be the father of many nations and that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him and his lineage. 
But this plan started out with only a single nation, and even, to reduce it to its first form, to a single man. And what is super interesting in this passage is to pair it with a study in uh, Deuteronomy 9 verses 4 through 6, where Moses outlines for the Israelites that, and the, that the surrounding nations were not chosen because of their wickedness. And so Moses is also clear in the same passage, telling the Israelites that it's not time for themselves to feel a prideful and to feel a full of themselves either because God wasn't selecting them also because of their specialness or their worthiness or any kind of righteousness. If anything, they had the same proclivities to wickedness as the Canaanites, as you and I do. But this redemptive plan started with one nation because God needed to start paving a way for his son's birth and needed it to happen within a nation that would be ready to receive such a gift. And so he chose the Israelites to do so. And he needed to prepare them for just that very fact, for that very act. But first, the other wicked nations would need to be removed so that they would be no further distraction or that they wouldn't sully the Israelites' journey of faith at this point anymore. So read the follow-up question. Read John 21 verses 20 to 22. Jesus had told Peter that he would die for the cause of God's kingdom. And Peter expresses concern about his fellow disciple John, saying, what about this man? Well, how does Jesus' reply challenge us and our mission? And so the reading of Deuteronomy 9 from the prior discussion here um, may cause us to wonder a little bit more about God's intentions and that he didn't choose one of the other wicked nations. And that's okay, we can wonder these things. We are naturally concerned for others and that's a good thing. However, in this passage in John, we receive clear instruction that we are responsible for our own actions and our own journeys of faith and that the Israelites were responsible for the same. Additionally, though, uh, Paul highlights in uh, Romans 9 saying, uh, God saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so uh, as we go back to John, uh, Peter had just been told that he is the one to feed God's lambs three times over and was also told that he would die as a result of doing all that. And so P Peter was left with a firm and clear instruction from Jesus then to follow me. And so P Peter carries on this conversation wondering about all those who might deny or betray Jesus. And Peter then points out John and asks Jesus, well, what, what's he going to do? How's he going to die as he follows you? And Jesus replies quite pointed. What is that to you? You concern yourself with following me. And Jesus is stretching this missional fact that his followers need to be certain and clear in who they love and who they are following. And Peter's concern for John can only be something useful if he himself is following Jesus closely. And for Christians now, the same is true, that we will not be effective in God's mission if we are not truly seeking him first. So how does this all challenge us in our mission? Oh, we need to seek God and God first. Just like the Israelites were needing to do the same as they were uh, battling out uh, for the lands with uh, all the nations that surrounded them. We need to see that is true for ourselves as well, that we need to seek the Lord first. So follow up with uh, question number three. Read Deuteronomy 7 verses 9, Matthew 9, 4, 18 through 19, and 28, 18 through 20. The Israelites were adopted by God for his purpose of growing his kingdom on earth, which was further initiated by the coming of Christ, who came and called the 12 disciples to be fishers of men. Now we are called to do the same. But why is it so challenging for us to fulfill this mission? And so the, the doctrine of election here leaves us with a firm understanding that we have been called with a missional purpose. Christians are to be evangelists. 
Christians are to be missionaries. There is simply no escaping or denying that calling. There's nothing we can do to change that. However, Christians feel hesitant to share their faith with others for a whole variety of reasons, like a fear of failure or not knowing the right answers, a sense of inadequacy, not wanting to offend or push people away that we're close to. So have that conversation with your group and, and talk through why is it challenging for us. Name those things. Affirm those things in each other because we need to feel supported in our missional endeavors. So follow up this discussion with reading Deuteronomy 31, verse 7 through 8, and Acts 1, verses 6 through 8, where we see that Moses, Joshua, and the disciples were all told that God would go ahead of them while on their mission. Now, what does this mean for you? Well, as we have been given this mission to share the gospel message with the entire world, the Lord will never leave us ill-equipped. As the Lord told Moses and Joshua at the end of Deuteronomy, and as he shared with the disciples ahead of Pentecost, that he will be with those who serve him. Now, now a few weeks ago, we, we had a conversation around John 14, verses 23 to 26, where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit's presence and the work in the lives of those who follow him. Now, I, I think it would be neat at this point in your discussions, if you could, if you were able to, to bring up that discussion from a few weeks ago, where we asked the question, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will be our primary aid in hearing God's voice. How does he do that? Well, this question that we're asking now about what does this mean to you goes a similar direction, except for with a slight difference, as we are now being asked about what the Spirit's activity means to us, and a little less about how it happens, but what it means to us and how it fuels us to go forward. And so I, what I really want to have here is that your, your groups would see the reality that the Spirit, in His nature, provides comfort and provides support, helping you recall all that you have learned and all the things that you are learning. This means that as you go into the world as evangelists, as missionaries, fulfilling that calling that we all have, that the Lord goes ahead of you, giving you the words, the references, the stories, the related points, the compassion, and the love And so we should be able to go into this world with confidence, knowing that the Lord, by his spirit, will lead the way. And that's just astounding. Take it home with this final question. Read Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20, and Jeremiah 29, verse 7, where Paul implies that we are not strangers in Christ's kingdom. We are still foreigners in the world. And Jeremiah writes to the Israelites who are held captive in Babylon to seek the welfare of the city in which they are living. Well, how does this understanding help shape your own purpose in this life? And so pairing these two passages together in this discussion around the doctrine of election is super intriguing. Paul tells us in Ephesians uh, that in God's kingdom, that we are no longer strangers or aliens. However, while still on earth, well, we might feel a little more like those strangers and aliens, but perhaps how the Israelites felt as they were in Babylonian captivity as well. You see, Jeremiah writes to the nation of Israel who are in Babylonian captivity, and they're going to be for quite some time. He tells them to get comfortable and to get used to their new patterns. But more so, he tells them to be concerned for their captors, to to seek out their welfare and to contribute positively to the livelihood of the Babylonians. And so for us now, while our earthly citizenship is likely Canadian, Uh, Our heavenly citizenship means more. It's our calling now as strangers in the land in which we are in to seek the welfare, the goodness of our neighbors, to seek the opportunity to contribute positively to their livelihoods. And if God's election of you 
uh, to that very point uh, doesn't give you that highlight. I think we've missed the point somewhere along the way. And that as Pastor Justin's sharing with us over on Sunday is that this whole election principle is to inspire boldness in evangelism and not an apathy. That is to deliver a security and not an insecurity. We can go with confidence knowing that souls will be saved. And that's an incredibly uh, comforting fact for us to rest in. Well, leaders, I think that's uh, plenty of discussion now. There's a lot of things to talk about there. I hope and I pray that your your conversations around election are are uh, productive, that they're deep and that they're engaging, but they're also meaningful and leaves you inspired to live uh, your Christian walk for another week ahead. Well, leaders, I pray a huge blessing upon you and your leaders as we go into the second last meeting of our semester. Blessings to you all, and we'll see you soon.